You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Previously on Family Ghosts. I felt that what had happened to my father was inside of me and it was eating me from the inside out. I thought about my dad all the time. And I didn't talk about him to anyone. I kept him a secret. And uh, Jane's like, oh, my friend Harold has a room in his house. I remember spending a lot of time that first winter in my bedroom, sitting in a rocking chair reading The Waves and to the lighthouse and Mrs. Dalloway and really feeling like I was finding life through literature. You move into Ready Avenue to get ready and then you leave. I'm watching this television show about homicide detectives in Baltimore, and I suddenly realize that it's my dad's story happening on the TV screen. I was in New York City. My dad wasn't supposed to be able to find me in New York City. And here he is on the TV screen. I think in the back of my mind, I had continued to delude myself that quote-unquote people were quote-unquote working on my dad's case. And then I thought, it's going to be 20 years. Like, are these people uh, alive? I thought, I'm a writer at this point, and I can tell his story. I looked up the phone number and called this number that I thought was... uh, Augie's house. I don't need to know about September 87 or... But really, you don't want to know about 87 because what you would hear, you wouldn't like. From WALTFM, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. And way back... In the very first episode of this podcast, I told the story of my grandfather and his love affair with a mysterious woman named Sabina. My grandfather met Sabina in the Diamond District of Manhattan, where they both worked. And not long after they fell in love, Sabina abruptly fled the country because it turned out that she was wanted as part of an investigation by Interpol and the FBI into an international jewel smuggling ring. And in the course of talking to my family about this, I learned that one day after Sabina disappeared, my grandfather took some jewelry that she'd left behind, put it in a pillowcase, and tossed it into a lake behind the local public library. So one day, I drove out to this same library, and I stood on the shore of that lake. I picked up a big rock, and I tossed it in. And I stood there for a while, staring at the water, and trying to picture my grandfather standing where I stood, doing the exact same thing. After that episode came out, one of the most frequent questions that I got from listeners was, why didn't you try to retrieve the lost jewelry from the bottom of the lake? Now, the easy answer would be that it was expensive. I did go as far as pricing it out. And if you have any family heirlooms lost at the bottom of lakes you'd like to dredge up, and you've got to spare 5000 bucks burning a hole in your pocket... I do have some names I can send you. But the real reason I didn't drag the lake is that as I stood there that afternoon, 
I wasn't wondering what the jewelry in the pillowcase looked like or where it came from. I was more focused on the ripples that were emanating from the spot where the rock I tossed vanished beneath the water. Today, we're bringing you the third and final chapter in our story about Kate Crane, whose father, Eddie Crane, disappeared without a trace from his office in Curtis Bay, Baltimore, back in 1987. Last time on the show, you heard about the trips Kate started making to Baltimore in 2007, 20 years later. At some point on one of those trips, Kate started recording the thoughts she was having while she was in the car. Coming up to uh, that $5 toll plaza, I was thinking about my dad, thinking that I could just barely remember what his voice sounds like. I remembered he always had a very tough and self-assured, this is Eddie Crane, you know, like, don't mess with me. I thought about him driving to work, you know, can I get a receipt please, and, you know, the same things that I say, except now I'm getting a receipt because I'm going to Baltimore to uh, do what's quite possibly a crazy cockamamie thing. Just don't know. Kate had decided that she wanted to write a book about her father. And in the course of making these trips and interviewing sources for her book, she had discovered some leads about what might have happened to Eddie. There was that ominous phone conversation with someone at Augie's house, which seemed to suggest that something nefarious had taken place. And then, of course, there was the story someone else told her over the phone about a rumor going around Curtis Bay that some lowlifes had murdered Eddie and put his body in a wall. Now, I'm guessing some of you heard that part of the story and thought, well, the next step is obvious. Kate's got to go find that wall, which she did. I did get to go see the wall. It's a metal retaining wall. Maybe when you heard about the wall, you also thought, Kate, get a sledgehammer. Break down that wall. But the longer Kate stared at this wall, the more she thought about everything that had happened to her over the last few years that she had spent on this very lonely quest. Five years had passed, and I thought, what am I doing? Other people are getting married and having kids, and what am I doing? I'm going into debt, and I'm hanging out with my dead father all the time. And it did feel like being alone with this mysteriously dead person who, whether he meant this or not, he left me. And I was, like, stuck alone with this man who left me. And, you know, trying to go knock down a wall was just extending a rabbit hole that I was feeling increasingly resentful of. After so many years of silence and unanswered questions, when Kate thought about trying to open up that wall, it raised another deeper question. What's it going to change? Around this time, Kate was talking to a fellow journalist about her story. And he said, oh, you know you've got to go knock down that wall, right? And I thought, no. No. <laughs> 
Not if I don't want to, I don't. After the break, a retaining wall and what it retains. Stay tuned. Anyway, um... Did you want some bread cake? I'm allergic to wheat. So, it's Ooh, all yours. Gluten? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway... You know, I'll ask you questions, and if you don't want to answer them, you can just say, Honey, I don't want to answer any questions. I'm concerned about you, not me. Okay. Well... On one of her trips to Baltimore, Kate sat down at a restaurant with her tape recorder and her uncle Bob, Eddie's brother, who also worked at E&M Machinery, the company that Eddie ran with Augie. Like Kate, Bob had spent decades searching for answers about Eddie's disappearance. And also like Kate, he says he knew the second he heard about Eddie that his brother had been killed. He told the cops, nobody's ever kicked my brother's ass. If he's missing, it's because he's dead. Over dinner, Bob told Kate about how frustrated he became with the cop's inability to solve the case. Bob said it was only at his urging that police investigated the office at E&M Machinery, where they discovered the blood spatter and bullet holes, which Kate had seen dramatized in that episode of Homicide, Life on the Streets. And over the years, Bob reached a lot of the same conclusions Kate was coming to. Eddie's story was full of promising leads that ultimately led nowhere. As near as Bob could tell, the cops hadn't made much of an effort to investigate those stories drifting around the taverns and docks of Curtis Bay about Eddie's body being put in a wall. He said that there were potential witnesses who answered their doors in the middle of the night and were shot in cold blood. And Bob was certain that it was Augie's henchman who pulled the trigger. Finally, Bob got fed up, and he decided to take matters into his own hands. If the cops weren't going to charge Augie, Bob decided he was going to go see Augie himself and demand answers. But right around the time he was preparing to do that, Bob and his wife woke up to the sound of an explosion. We were living in the Ridge Gardens apartment, and there was a newspaper box chained to a pole right outside of our apartment. They put a stick of dynamite in that, blew that thing up, it landed way down the street. And Ed Brown said, well, that's a message for you to stop spreading the news. But, uh, Bob thinks Augie was sending a message when he blew up the newspaper box. Stop spreading the news. Stop asking questions. After that, Bob started carrying a gun everywhere he went checking the street for strange cars when he came home at night. When he told Kate that, he paused for a moment afterwards and then said, it's a hell of a way to live. I mean, you are forever looking over your shoulder and looking around. And, and, uh, 
Sometime later, Bob heard from a disgruntled former employee of E&M Machinery who said he wanted to talk about Augie. Bob went back to the cops one last time, and he said he wanted to meet with this guy and that maybe when he went, he could wear a wire. Maybe the guy would let something slip that would break the case open. But the detectives told Bob they wouldn't let him do it. It was too dangerous. According to Bob, they didn't mince words. One officer told him, if you want to survive, you'd better divorce yourself from anything having to do with E&M machinery. Bob was incredulous, but so was the detective, who put his hand on Bob's shoulder and asked, why are you trying to be Superman? Towards the end of the meal, Bob's daughter asked why Kate wanted to know so much about her father's case. And Kate told them she was planning to write a book. And suddenly, Bob was the one who didn't want to mince words. Now, it's a little hard to hear what he says with all the background noise, but you can hear his tone shift in the recording. Bob tells Kate, don't do it. These people will think nothing of killing you. Augie, Bob says, is a cold and ruthless man. This is like why I've been crying. Well, I say you need to be careful. Oh, but Uncle Bob, you stole the living shit out of you. So... Why should? Yes. He's not exaggerating. I know. I know. I believe him. In the car on the way back to New York, Kate found herself wondering how much more of this she could take. Uncle Bob said, you know, Grandma Pilda raised them. You know, you've, you've got to run with the wolves. And my mom raised me. You know, that's not a good idea. There's just no way to distinguish the man from the boogeyman when night falls shadow of a cat can make me think that uh, one of all these men is at the door coming to shut me up. And then, back in New York, while Kate was trying to figure out what to do next, there was a break in the case. But it broke in the wrong direction. In 2011, Augie hanged himself. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. Augie's death upended Kate's search for the truth about her father. For years, she'd been convinced that Augie was the only one who actually had the answers she was looking for. And now, he was gone. At first, Kate was stunned. And then she decided she wanted to see if she could find out where he was going to be buried. I called like 32 funeral homes. I felt extremely driven to go find the funeral and and to go basically make sure he was dead and see him. Like a, a lot of this whole project was about being able to see things. I don't think Augie actually killed my father. I think he had um, other employees kill my father. But I think he was the person who engineered it. I've had a lot of life since 1987, and I've, I've done a good job with my life. But that really was sort of a pivotal, defining event that shaped my entire life. 
wanted to see this person whose actions shaped my entire life. But none of those 32 funeral homes turned out to be the right one. So Kate never got to see Augie's body go into the ground. And yet, it was clear. The man who Kate once thought of as an uncle had taken the secret of whatever happened to her father to his grave. By now, it was May of 2011, almost 24 years since Eddie's disappearance. I really was so tired at that point. I don't think I thought Augie was ever going to call me. And even if he did, liars tell lies. I wasn't ever going to get any kind of truth out of him. I would have just had a conversation with a liar. So I think I had given up on, you know, learning the truth. At this point, Kate didn't have a lot of leads left to run down. Bob had told her he thought maybe Eddie's body had been disposed of in a rendering plant across the street from E&M Machinery. She had also heard theories that Eddie had been dumped in a vat of acid somewhere on the property in Curtis Bay. But even if either of those things turned out to be true, she'd be right back where she started. No body. No Eddie. No dad. Worse yet, the sources of those theories were pretty unreliable. Drunks and thugs who had plenty of reason to lie and no reason to talk to Kate. And then there was the wall and the lingering question of how or if Kate might tear it down. It wasn't like a brick wall where, you know, you could picture some gangster movie where they like take a sledgehammer and knock out some bricks and then brick it back up in the dark of night. It's like sheets of metal. So once I saw it, it didn't make that much sense to me either. I had left the Wall Street Journal where I could have had a very easy career path. Many of my former colleagues have stayed in that universe and, and have really, you know, happy, fairly stable careers, even given journalism. And I thought, like, what am I, what am I doing? And I was becoming increasingly resentful of my father. I knew I had set off on the right path, and I did feel that I had probably saved my own life by going off and asking questions and trying to write about it. But I also felt like, why do I have to do this? Why should I set up a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe to demolish some wall and get into some legal battle with... I could just... I was already down a pretty unpleasant rabbit hole. One day, Kate was out to lunch with an old friend named Mayor. And he was, like, trying to counsel me about my dating life. And, and I was like, Mayor, no, I can't, re- like, people can't relate to me. Basically, like, my creepy dead dad was at the center of everything. And I didn't know how to talk about it. And I didn't know how to not talk about it. And I remember just this, like, sweet, amused, like, I give up look on Mayor's face. Like, yeah, I, I don't really know what to tell you. I didn't want to be alone with my dad indefinitely. Eddie's body may or may not have been literally packed into that retaining wall. But emotionally, Kate was trapped in there with him. She'd been living her life in suspension for decades. Towards the end of 2011, Kate decided it was time to stop asking questions. 
In November of the same year, six months after Augie's death, Kate and her mom and sister held a small memorial service for Eddie. Just like anniversaries have power, rituals have power. And I felt like I had done something crucial. Like whatever your concept of God is or is not, it is important to uh, honor our dead. In 1992, at the end of high school, just when Kate was starting to move on from the pain of Eddie's disappearance, an article appeared in the newspaper that brought the whole story back to life in vivid new detail. Then, in 1997, when Kate moved to New York to start a new life, it happened again when she was confronted with the dramatization of Eddie's story in that episode of Homicide, Life on the Streets. And then, in 2007, Kate brought the story back to life herself when she realized that if no one else was going to figure out what really happened to Eddie Crane, it might as well be her. After almost 25 years, symbolically if nothing else, Kate had finally laid Eddie to rest. But then... There was a source that I had been chasing for a long time. And he was very reluctant to talk to me. He just put me off and put me off and put me off. And one day I called and he said, young lady, I, uh, I talked to my wife about you uh, the other day. And I was like, oh, really? Uh, what did your wife say? And he said, well, my wife said, you have to talk to that young lady. And I said, okay, I'll come to Baltimore tomorrow. <laughs> And that's pretty much what happened. He was like, oh, well, you know, if it's a problem, I'm like, I'll see you in the morning. We met up at a diner that we used to hang out in, and he made me turn off the recorder. And he said that 10 years after my father disappeared, they got a letter from the FBI saying like, oh, heads up, that guy Eddie Crane was working for us. And that was it. What likely happened is that uh, the trucking business was doing some kind of illegal activity that crossed state lines. Otherwise, I think the FBI wouldn't be involved. And they most likely came to my father and said, you can go to prison or you can inform on your partner. And so that, that dispute about money may have been incidental. I think what likely actually happened is that Augie figured out that his partner was informing on him. And that's what, that's, that's what happened. They made him disappear. There was still one person Kate had never talked to about any of this. Her mom. For a while, in the immediate aftermath of Eddie's disappearance... Kate had tried to get answers from her mom, but when it became clear that she wasn't willing to talk about it, Kate had mostly given up. But in light of this new information, Kate decided to try one more time. I had lunch with her at some like nice little Baltimore place called The Bowman, and I, I sort of sketched out the things that I had found. And uh, when I mentioned the FBI thing, she just shot me a look and said, who told you that? Which, you know, 
I, I trusted the source, but that that was an interesting reaction. It wasn't like, huh? It was, who told you that? I'm pretty sure she knew. And, and then after I told her everything I had found out, she just said, well, I could have told you that. Like, just this, I could have told you all of that. But she didn't. It's now been more than 30 years since the disappearance of Eddie Crane. And as we speak, Kate is finally close to finishing her book. The book is much more about me and this path than about my father. The book is about asking questions that don't have an answer. And I do believe that storytelling saves lives. And I think that there is unspeakable power in telling stories and in telling our own stories. Over time, Kate's realized the story she wants to tell isn't what she thought it was. It's not the story of what's inside the wall. It's the story of finding out what's on the other side. A story is alive. And each question, each sentence made a little pathway through that wall. Less a sledgehammer and more a process of erosion, like water on rock. Next time on Family Ghosts, a new story begins. I've got the door. Thanks, Russ. That lights out is in 20 minutes. Are you going to be all right getting home? I think I can handle the mean streets of Mount Absalom. If you're sure. Good night, Dot. Night. Good night, Dot. Well, hiya, Dot. Hi, Dot Harper. Mommy? Good morning, Dot. Dot. Dottie. Dot. Good night. Dot. Dot. Dottie. Dorothy. 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 Dot? Wes? Dot, are you alright? Definitely not. A boarding house owner in Mount Absalom, Ohio, gets a visit from the past. That's coming up in two weeks, right here on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. Incidental music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this week to Michaela Bly, Najib Amini, 
Adrian Bain, and of course, to Kate Crane for collaborating with us on this story. Kate's book will be published by HarperCollins, and we'll let you know where you can pre-order it as soon as it's available. If you're looking for something to listen to in the off weeks between episodes of Family Ghosts and you like the HBO dramedy Six Feet Under, check out Fisher Family Ghosts, our first-ever Family Ghosts spinoff. Every week, my partner Adrian and I watch an episode of Six Feet Under and then talk about the ways the characters, themes, and narratives affect our perspective on storytelling and our own families. Find Fisher Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. This show is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get early access to all of our episodes, hear them ad-free, and they also get exclusive bonus content not available anywhere else. This month, Kindred Spirits can hear me in the role of a disgruntled alien sentry in a futuristic space dystopia radio drama. So if you have the means, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Please consider supporting us by telling a friend about the show or leaving us a review. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new story. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then.